This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, November 19th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. How state-run bail systems function is somewhat divorced from the risks posed by defendants before trial. Daniel Dew of the Buckeye Institute sat down with me at the State Policy Network annual meeting in Salt Lake City to discuss potential reforms to this system so low-income Americans aren't unduly punished when they pose no risk to the public. As of this recording, um, I, a friend in Jefferson County, Kentucky, uh, she and I were college roommates. Uh, she's running for judge. And the, the point that she makes to me is, you know, if somebody is a, a threat of flight or further potential criminal activity, they are that uh, whatever the bail is that you might set for them. And uh, for various various reasons, people who uh, cannot afford $1,000 definitely can't afford $10,000. Some people can't afford $500 for bail. So, so how do you think about the issue of uh, bail you know, pending trial? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the amount of money that you deposit with a court or with a bail bond agent, that has no effect on the, the safety risk you are to the community. And so when we're looking at pretrial detention, what we really need to look at is if this person is a danger to, to the community or we think that there's a reasonable possibility, first we should look at are there things other than incarceration? This person still has the presumption of innocence. They haven't proven, they haven't been found guilty in a court of law. And so, you know, pretrial deterrent, the uh, incarceration should be the exception, not the rule. Whereas right now in a lot of places, it is unless you can come up with X dollars, you are going to sit in jail until your trial, which could be weeks or months or in some cases, even years. And so we, we really look at this the wrong way. And I think that money bail is a lazy end around to due process. And really, we need to put the, the burden back on the government to demonstrate to the court why this person should be held before trial or why we need to have these uh, these um, different conditions set on them while they're waiting trial. How does that change the balance of power? What kind of leverage does uh, bail as an institution that can be raised or lowered depending on the person who's being charged how does that shift the power between prosecutors and defense attorneys? Oh, it's it's a huge shift. So first of all, it it uh, people who are in jail they can't help with their defense. They can't assist their attorney in providing the things that they need to provide an adequate defense. And also, it is a you know it's it's leverage for a plea bargain. So a lot of times, what you'll have is you'll have people sitting in jail, and if it's for a non serious offense. The prosecutor will come in and say, plead guilty to this misdemeanor and we'll give you time served or plead guilty to this low level felony and we'll give you probation. And whether the person did it or not, they want to get out of there. And so they plead guilty. And, you know, I think it contributes to the fact that we have less than 3% of cases actually go to trial. We we don't have a criminal justice system. We have a negotiated plea bargain system. All right. So. Uh, if I have been arrested for a crime and uh, I have a choice to make between pleading guilty 
uh, if, if, if assuming I'm innocent uh, and I have a choice between pleading guilty or going to trial, what are the likely impacts on those people with respect to employment, uh, to their families? Um, you know, what, what do we know about that? Sure. We know that sitting in jail just for 24, 48, 72 hours has huge impacts on um, on the lives of people. They can lose jobs. That hurts family relationships. I mean, there's a study showing that that um, the the likelihood that a low level person, a person who otherwise doesn't have a propensity to commit crimes, their likelihood of committing an offense before trial skyrockets if they sit in jail for 72 hours. And the reason behind that is because if you lose your job. You know, everybody's got to eat. Everybody has to sustain their family somehow. And if your choice is committing some crime and your family not eating or not being able to pay rent, a lot of people make that choice that they're going to support their family. What do we know about the categories of charges for oh. which those people simply should not be held? Sure. So, I mean, you have you have drug possession offenses, you have um, low-level thefts, you have um, disorderly conduct, public intoxication. There are a number of things where even a even a small bail amount somebody can't make. We had an example in Ohio where there was a young man who was trying to use public transportation. He his uh, pants were sagged too low, and he had been warned a few times about that. So they cited him for trespassing because because the law enforcement had asked, had asked him to leave and he refused to leave. His bail, he had $150 bail. His family couldn't come up with it. He sat in jail for six days until his mom was able to get a car title loan to get him out of, out of jail. What public service did that provide? It cost more money to keep him in jail than the $150 he had to deposit with the court. It just doesn't make sense. And a car title loan, of course, carries with it a confiscatory interest rate quite often. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it really takes advantage of low-income people. And on the other side, it's, it's, a, it's a risk. It's a public safety risk because a lot of times we use money as, like I said, it's an end around a due process. And so the judge and the prosecutor will set a high bail and cross their fingers and hope that that the person can't make it. But we have examples of, of you know, a, somebody who tried to run over his wife and he had a $100,000 bail. He paid it. And a few days later, he shot and killed his wife because he was able to, to pay his bail. And, you know, if you're trying to, to kill your wife, we shouldn't let you out. You, that is the perfect example of somebody who should be held. Um, but that's not the way our system works right now. So, uh, have any states that you're aware of, or even at the at the federal level, um, have any have any states decided, hey, look, for these categories of crimes, we're just not going to hold you uh, pending trial because there's no point to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I think New Jersey is the gold star right now for pretrial reform. They um, they use a risk assessment tool. And I think that right now, 7% of, of the people um, are actually given some sort of uh, cash bail or are held before trial. Um, you know, the presumption is release, is, which it should be. And the New Jersey system gets criticized a little bit because 
It's expensive. In their legislation, they have 24-7 pretrial services, so somebody always has to be available. And and so pretrial reform gets gets attacked on those grounds. But it can certainly be adapted to different locations. It doesn't have to be that. But the principles behind the New Jersey model is really what we want to see across the country. So what would that look like? Uh, you know, how does, again, we're talking about, in in some ways, the calculus of uh, a defendant mm-hmm. and the calculus of prosecutors and defense attorneys in trying to uh, come to an agreement so that tr- a trial might not hap- have to happen or uh, dis- you know, a, a defendant deciding, I, I want to go to trial instead. Um, how would broad reform, again, alter that calculus back in favor of criminal defendants who want to assert their right to a trial? I mean, even that is kind of problematic. So first of all, they would be able to help with their defense. And so so they would be able to meet more often with their attorney, be more candid with with their attorney. So it would help in that way. And they don't have the pressure of, I need to plead guilty so I can get out and see my family right now. But unfortunately, you're you're looking at another issue that we have, the trial tax, where if, if you do exercise your right to go to trial, um, the court is going to hammer you. Whereas if you take the plea bargain, um, you know, you're going to get probation or you're going to get a much lighter sentence than you otherwise would. Okay. So the, uh, the idea of bail is one component that contributes to this enormous power that prosecutors have in order to avoid having to, heaven forbid, actually go into a courtroom and, uh, argue a case. That's it. That's a huge issue right now. A huge issue is there are a lot of prosecutors that have been prosecuting for a long time that don't have a ton of trial experience because so few um, cases actually go to trial. It's it's a, a crazy phenomenon that we have. And, and the unfortunate result is you have low-level people being punished more harshly than they should. And quite frankly, people that should be in prison for a long time not being there as long as they should because they're getting a discount because they're not being taken to trial. So it's it's really, you know, uh, bringing everything to the median. So um, I, I want to crow a little bit about the, the Buckeye Institute and uh, some of its work, in part because of the work of Buckeye. Ohio has one of the best mens rea laws, one of the best mens rea reform laws, which is uh, knowledge. Is it bad knowledge? Is that yeah, crim- the criminal rea? intent? Criminal yeah, evil, intent. evil intent. Evil intent. Uh, and can you d- describe what Ohio did and why that is uh, or ought to be the model? Sure. Uh, you know, every law historically had two components. You had the bad act and you had the bad intent. And that's why, you know, if you, if you uh, push somebody down, that's a criminal offense. If you accidentally bump into them and the same harm results, that's not a crime. Maybe a tort, but it's not a crime. We're not going to put you in, we're not going to incarcerate you for that. Um, but unfortunately, as we see the proliferation of the criminal code, a lot of times the the legislature, legislators or regulators in a lot of cases don't think about that second component. They don't think about the the evil intent, the the criminal intent component of it. And so, what we did in Ohio, it we um, we did a mens rea reform, which had a, a few components to it. First, any statute or or regulation that doesn't have a a criminal intent, we put a default 
criminal intent. So even if it's even if it's silent, the the prosecution has to show that you act rec- acted recklessly. You you had some knowledge that that this bad result was likely to occur. But even going beyond that, and this is what I think really makes it the best is going forward any criminal any law with a criminal provision um, where there is no mens rea that law is just void it's 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 no good and uh, I think that that has really gone a long way I've actually sat in committee rooms where um, where the legislature has has said wait hold on what is the criminal intent in this bill because they knew that going forward, uh, it wouldn't even be a, a valid law under our code. So the the penalties are wiped clean. Yes. Uh, for uh, crimes that, for all intents and purposes, should carry uh, the requirement that the state show that there is some sort of intent. Right. Right. And and then and, the other- and that's that's prospective. That's prospectively. Retrospectively, it applies a default mens rea. It's um, but. But prospectively, if you don't include one, then your new criminal provision is no good. Um, and the other portion that it does that I think is really good is it applies that um, that mens rea to every element of the crime. It can't be um, just used in one, which was a particular problem in Ohio because we had some pretty bad case law on that. So um, what is the movement on the federal level? Uh, with respect to mens rea reform, I know a lot of uh, a lot of criminal justice. I'll call them hawks because they care about criminal justice. Um, have have said, look, there are so many of these regulatory burdens that we put on people who are maybe unaware that they're violating some regulatory uh, determination from an agency, and criminal penalties simply accrue to those violations, whether or not you had any any idea that you were doing anything wrong. Um, President Obama, on his way out of office, uh, apparently said something. Well, what did what did he say? Sure. So so um, President Obama wrote a law review law review article talking about what the president can do on criminal justice reform, and he he published this on his way out of office, um, and. Something that that was just relegated to a footnote is he talked about some sentencing reform that was before Congress and then got derailed. And the reason it got derailed is because there was mens rea reform in it. And a lot of the people who are traditionally pro-criminal justice reform turned away from it, um, especially on the left. And the reason was because they recognized that that mens rea um, provision the, the default mens rea would be disastrous to the administrative state because there are all of these regulations that have these criminal components, but no mens rea. So if if uh, dedicated listeners to this podcast will say, this would be devastating to the administrative state, please tell me more about this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, our prisons are not filled with people who violated regulations, but what it does do is it gives leverage to federal prosecutors, the, uh, you see a theme. There's leverage for prosecutors in, in all of these things, and so if the if the prosecution prosecutor comes to your your business and says you're violating X, Y, and Z regulation, there's the possibility of this criminal uh, of this prison time. You might 
be uh, more inclined to enter into a deferred prosecution agreement or non-prosecution agreement where you give huge sums of money to the federal government or to the federal government's pet project, whatever the prosecutor likes, some some organization that they've that they favor. Is there movement in other states to adopt essentially what Ohio has adopted, this default uh, mens rea provision and then a prospective uh, scrubbing of laws <laughs> that uh, that don't have it? There, there has been there have been some states that have had some movement. Um, Michigan has has done a default mens rea. I will say, uh, and not just because I'm from the Buckeye Institute, that ours is is superior to theirs. Uh, specifically because ours applies to the the criminal code. Theirs looks at at things outside of the criminal code, and because we do have the the perspective aspect of it. Daniel Dew is a legal fellow at the Buckeye Institute. We spoke at the State Policy Network annual meeting in October. You can rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.